Thank you. So, one of the things we just learned is that uh, not only do the kids make us nervous with instruments, but Dylan also makes us nervous with the instrument up here. I'm teasing. Inside joke, kind of. <laughs> I'll, for, I'll fill you in later, Dylan. <laughs> so, uh, well, it's, it is that time of year. Um, the Christmas season is in full blast. Uh, if you have been with us for a while, we're going verse by verse through the book of Romans. Uh, however, it's this time of year that we take a break from that. And uh, during this break, that we're going to do some Christmas-themed uh, messages. And Gary brought a message last week uh, that was great, talking about the curse and the curse being lifted. Um, this week, we are going to look at, at another place that may seem a little odd uh, for a Christmas message, but hopefully I can uh, draw that picture for you of why it's uh, relevant, not only relevant, but necessary. Uh, this morning, as, as Flannery was getting up, she was, uh, you know, sometimes she just provides the most perfect uh, sermon illustrations. She's, that's my four-year-old, and she was down, she was upstairs saying, who's going to get me up? Who's going to get me up? And so, so I went up and uh, got her up, and so I said, Flannery, you know, it's Christmas time's getting close. So what is, what's Christmas all about? And she said, it's all about Santa and me getting presents. I thought, oh, it's, it's okay. You know, I'll guide her. I was like, no, you know, whose birthday is it? And she says, mine. <laughs> so we have a little bit to go there. Uh, I went to talk to her uh, Sunday school teachers afterwards, and uh, no, just teasing, uh, just teasing, but um, I thought, you know, that is just, it's just perfect, and, and one of the things that I always, or at least this Christmas, that I thought quite a bit about is this, isn't it amazing that our society, our secular society, uh, takes time to celebrate Christmas? Now, obviously, for our secular society, what they mean by celebrating Christmas is quite different than what we should mean as Christians. You know, for our society around us, you know, it's, it's time off. Uh, it's about family. Uh, Flannery is also watching a Christmas movie two or three times a day, boys. Um, <laughs> that is all about uh, spreading Christmas cheer and... Uh, 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 giving to others and overcoming personal obstacles. Um, and, and that is the message that you will get from the Hallmark movies that Gary watches or, uh, as he confessed last week if you weren't here, that was his confession. Um, the problem is, the problem is, is that in many ways, I, I think instead of our church affecting the society about this Christmas message and what, what it is really all about, in many ways what has happened is that society has infected the church. And so every year about this time, I, uh, the, the question that I always kind of come back to is, um, as we look into that manger, what do we see? As, as we take time to celebrate the birth of Jesus... As we look at that, as we look at this baby uh, that was God's son, that God sent to this earth, what do we see when we look at him? 
I think far too often we look in that manger and we see a Jesus that we are hoping is some kind of genie that works for us, that helps us get what we want in life. Um, there's no political uh, uh, pun here when I say this. Sometimes we look in the manger and we see a fixer. Uh, someone that has come to fix our problems and to take care of them. That we just kind of disperse Jesus and he goes and takes care of those problems in the world out there. I was reading this morning, there was a CNN article that um, from a Christian, uh, a self-proclaimed Christian, that the whole point of the of the uh, article was that Jesus was an immigrant. And, and so, you know, how we should take care. And, and don't hear me wrong, we should take care of immigrants. I'm a firm believer in that. But when we look into the manger, if that's all we're seeing, we're missing something. So, this morning, my goal is this. My goal is that this Christmas you will be filled with awe and wonder and thanksgiving so that when you hear these songs or when you read the story or you hear the story as was read from Luke 2 this morning that something happens inside of you and you are filled with joy and awe and wonder over the right things. And so I want to go to a little bit of an odd place maybe, even though I don't think it is and I'm going to make my case of why it's not an odd place. But, but I want to go and I want to spend this morning talking about, in part, uh, Jesus' cousin, John. If you read the Christmas narrative from Luke, which is the one that gives us the most detail, one of the things that you will find uh, as you read is that, like this morning, we read about Jesus. But if you look at the narrative that's there in Luke, one of the things that happens is that the story is constantly shifting from uh, John... Uh, to Jesus and back. And then in Luke 3, we have this culmination of this story. And so Luke, as an author, is pointing to something. So when Luke writes about John in his gospel, it's not just this throwaway story or this really neat sort of thing. It's important. Luke is saying, pay attention to this. And it's not important just to know, oh, I need some historical facts about this man named John the Baptist who ate weird bugs in the wilderness and dressed funny. He's saying there's something about this man, John, that's vitally important. And it's not about John, it's what John has to do with our Savior and Lord. And so as we dig in this morning, as we dig in this morning, I want us to see, and we're going we're gonna to end in Luke 3 and talk uh, quite a bit about this message that John proclaimed, but I want you just to see just real quickly as we flow through that in, in the Christmas story, we actually have two miraculous births, right? We know about the, the miraculous uh, uh, birth of Jesus, but we also have the miraculous birth of John in Luke chapter 1, verse 5 uh, through 7. It tells us this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest whose name was Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly uh, in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And then it came about, we see, that the angel of the Lord told them that you will be with child. Then in verse 17... 
This angel tells us this, and he will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So that we see John's job here is to make ready a people, to make straight the path of the Lord. Look at verse 15. This is interesting. For while he will be great in the sight of the Lord, he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And then as we fast forward through the, through the story, we see in verses 39 through 45 that when Elizabeth and Mary, who were relatives, meet with one another, what happens in Elizabeth's womb? The baby, filled with the Spirit, jumps and leaps when he comes in contact with the Savior of the world, Jesus, who is in Mary's womb. Fascinating. Fascinating. And as we fast forward in Luke on over in chapter 1 to verse 76 through 80, uh, there, there's, there's all kinds of interesting parts of this story, and we're not going to get into it all, but Zacharias, as, his, uh, as he was able to speak at this point, uh, he says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from, our, from on mountains shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and to shadow in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So we see that Luke is painstakingly taking this narrative and painstakingly talking about this man, John, who was to be the forerunner, who was to be the last prophet that would prophesy about the coming of Jesus. Now, we're going to fast forward and many of you know uh, this story, that when we meet John, that he is in the wilderness. He's called John the Baptist uh, because of his denomination affiliation. No, just seeing if you're awake. He's called John the Baptist because he was out baptizing uh, in the wilderness. And uh, Luke and, and the other gospel, some of the other Gospels as well take us to this scene. And they're all a little different, but we're going to stay here in the book of Luke. So John is out there in the wilderness, he's preaching, he's declaring the coming of Christ, uh, and people are flocking out to see him, wondering what in the world is going on. And so I want us to take some time this morning and to look at John's message, because I think if we're going to get the wonder and the awe of who this Jesus is, uh, John has an important message for us that, I, just bear with me, because you're going to feel like I'm a big buzzkill uh, for about the next 20 minutes or so. But let's hear John's message. In verse 7, in chapter 3. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him. This is the kind, uh, seeker-friendly John. You brood of vipers. <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, I just want to say, from this passage, as I've been studying it, there are like 10 or 12 uh, sermons. But we're just going to have one, uh, and so we're going to focus in on 
uh, what I feel like is the main theme running throughout here. But it says that, but, so the important thing is, is here is, he says, who warned you of the wrath to come? Now, whether he was being sarcastic or whether he was being serious, I, I don't know, and that's for, for further debate. But the main important thing I want you to see here is that notice what John is saying to these people who are coming to be baptized. Notice the theme that John introduces, or is introduced by Luke in John's message. Who warned you of the wrath to come? Why wrath? Why does he go here? And we see in verse 8. He says, therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for your father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And so what John is saying is that John is saying, who warned you of the wrath? And I know that wrath is coming upon you because you are not showing forth the fruits that are in keeping with repentance. Now, before you go on and say, well, wait a minute, Lewis, that's legalism, that's earning your salvation, the wording here is very important. The wording here is funny. Notice it says, you're not bearing fruit in keeping with or in accordance with repentance. So John is, is giving us the message that we've learned, if you've been with us in Romans, that you're not saved by your works, but your works are evidence of a heart change. And that's what John is laying out here. And so John is saying that your works, but by your works it's not evident. And so who warns you of the wrath that is over you? And we see this later on. Uh, and I think this part's fascinating. And I would love to spend a ton of time here. Uh, but I will just say this in verses 10 through 15 where we, we have in multitudes were questioning him saying, what shall we do? And he would answer and say to him, let he who has two tunics share with him who has none. Let him who has food do likewise. And then notice this. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized. And they said, what shall we do? And he said to them, notice how specific he gets here. Specific to who they were and who their, what their profession was. And he said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to do. This was their reputation, was to collect more than what they were ordered. And to the soldiers that were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? Notice again, he goes right to the heart of the matter. Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. And so what we have going on is that John is naming the sin that's in their life. He's naming the sin that these folks would struggle with. And what he's saying is, is that true repentance, a true relationship with God, would mean that your fruit or your actions would be different. And since if I don't see that, then what's happening is that the wrath of God is hanging over you. And in verse 8, he tells us, who warned you of this? So if there's no fruit, that's evident of the wrath. And then notice in verse 9, so you're going to see the theme here. Verse 9, he says this, And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's interesting, in the ESV, we're told, it reads a little differently. It says that even now, it's giving forward in, in the Greek this, this idea where it says has already, it's already being laid to the root. So there's an axe that at this time, even now, is already being laid to the root of this tree. 
And what he's talking about, and we know this over and over and over in the Bible, that we're told that, if, that, that the, the metaphor is that you are like a tree. And if you are not bearing or bringing forth good fruit, then that's evidence of something that's wrong. And what John is telling us is that, that there is someone that is holding an axe even now at the root of the tree, and every tree that doesn't bear fruit will be cut down. This should bring to mind, you remember in the um, book of Mark chapter 11 when Jesus sees the fig tree and he curses the fig tree because it's not bearing fruit. In Luke's gospel in chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable of a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit and is cut down and is cast away. Recently in Romans chapter 11, we talked about this idea that Paul brought us in Romans chapter 11 about the branches and that, that some were lopped off because of unbelief and others were being grafted back in. This isn't a foreign concept for Bible readers. So notice the point here in verse 7 and verse 9 that John is proclaiming as he is the one that was sent to herald and to make straight the path of the Lord, what he is proclaiming is wrath and judgment. And what I want you to see is that Jesus' coming, the coming of Christ, or Advent, is being announced in this way because what I, you will see from this passage is that the wrath and the judgment, the person holding the axe to the root of the tree is the Messiah that has come into the world. Now, some of you may say, whoa, 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 Lewis. In verses 7 and 9, we do not see Jesus. And you're right. You're right. Let's look at verse 15. As John was giving this message in verse 15, it says, Now while the people were in a state of expectation... And all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and to thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and to gather the wheat into his barn, And He, He, Christ, will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, also He preached the gospel to the people. Now what we see is that as they were asking John, are you the Christ? Or as they were were thinking this, are you the Christ? And John says, I'm not the Christ. In fact, I'm not even able to untie, undo the thong on his sandal. And and this, in this day and age, um, was extreme. Even the slaves of the day didn't have to get that low in order to untie the thong on the sandal. So John was putting himself in a very lowly position as he was saying this. He's saying, no, 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 I'm not the Christ. And then he gives us the difference between what 
he was doing and what Jesus was, would do and was coming to do. And he does that through this idea of baptism. And John says this, I baptize you with water. Now, hang with me. We know this in the word Greek. This is not a sermon on baptism per se. But it's important to know the wording here. In the Greek, the word baptize means to immerse. And so what John is saying here, because we need to hear this, is John is saying, I immerse you with water. And the symbolism here is that John is saying, my baptism is a sign, it's a symbol of of what has happened. So if you repent and if you believe, then you come and you receive the sign of baptism. And that sign is immersion in water. But Jesus' baptism is different. Jesus has come to, to immerse with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, I want to look at those two things. First, the Holy Spirit. And this is the easier one. Uh, again, we could go into some controversies here, but we're going to stay at a higher level and, and get through this passage. But it, those of you who, who know your Bibles will know that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, and those two books are meant to be read together. And so what we have happening in the beginning of Acts is Pentecost happens and that the baptism by the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers. And what we see is that this is the prophesied giving of the Holy Spirit that was prophesied in Jeremiah. That God will put His Spirit within you and He'll write His law on your hearts. And so you will be immersed. If you believe in Jesus, you will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will come and it will produce a work in you. That, that for, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit's job in us is to convict us of sin. To lead us in the ways of righteousness. So that the Holy Spirit empowers us so that we bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now, I, I love, I, I don't endorse all of this man's writing, but uh, there was an author, he's, he's a mystic, and uh, his name is Brendan Manning, and one of the things I do like that he has written is that he calls the Christian life a victorious limp. And I love that imagery, and I just want to throw that out there because I don't want you to hear fruit uh, and, and be convicted wrongly that you might not be a Christian because you haven't done everything perfect this morning. But as Christians, we should live a life that's a victorious limp, that that, that the Holy Spirit is, is guiding us along, and over the course of our life, we see fruit that is worthy of repentance. It's not what it needs to be, but it is there and is guiding us through. So so John is saying, I baptize you with water, but Jesus is coming and he's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And it's going to enable you to do the work that you were called to do. Now, the second difference, the second difference is that John says here that he will also baptize with fire. Again, the idea of the Greek word is important. He is saying you are going to be immersed in fire. And there's debate by uh, some scholars and uh, commentators on what this means. Uh, you know, some, there's two options, I think, uh, although some give three. One is some idea of purity, that so when you're baptized by Jesus, that there's some kind of 
purity that you're baptized into or the fire burns away certain things and so what arises is pure. And, and to be honest, I just don't see that in the text. The other option is this, that the fire here represents judgment and wrath. And I think from the context, verse 7 and 9, that we've already looked at, it seems to, seems to denote that when John is talking about fire here. He's talking about judgment. If we read the rest of the the book, this Gospel of Luke, when we see the word fire, fire is several times in the book of Luke said coming down from heaven, and it's it's a picture and an imagery of judgment. So I don't think we should just change it here willy nilly. And then the other thing is that, and this is always good, when you get stumped when reading the Bible, one of the things that's always good is to read the next verse. Oftentimes that helps out a little bit. And look at the next verse. Verse 17. So he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And I think this is a verse that is further explaining what was happening earlier. In other words, I think when John says that Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, that he's talking about that there are two distinct different types of people that would have been there when John was baptizing. And he's saying there are two types of baptism that you will encounter. That you will either be baptized with the Holy Spirit or you will be baptized with fire. Notice verse 17. Let's talk about this just a little bit. It says that there's a winnowing fork in his hand. And the idea here is um, a, a, a farmer, I'm going to use modern language, who is growing wheat. And as you're growing wheat, other things, chaff gets in the wheat. And you don't want to eat chaff. And so what happens is, is that it has to be separated. And so all the stuff that has been gathered is put on the floor, the threshing floor. And what happens is, is that somebody has to come along with a fork and it's thrown into the air and it separates the wheat from the chaff. The wheat is what you want. The chaff is discarded. There's no use for it. And so the practice was, is that that was, that was burned. This is the picture. of This is who Jesus is. That He's coming with a winnowing fork in His hand to separate this out. And what you begin to see that becomes clearly as we think about this picture of John's declaration of who this Jesus is, we get this picture of Jesus here. Now we go back. Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the dawning of the messianic age, the inauguration of the kingdom of God being at hand. All of a sudden it starts to make sense when we hear these words that He has the axe and it is already being laid to the root because there's this idea of this already yet not complete in in this phrase of the axe at the root of the tree. And so we see that when Jesus comes into the world, the advent of Christ, the dawning of this new age, we don't just see a cuddly little baby 
we don't just look into this manger and see this person that's going to make everything in your life all right no matter who you are. What we see when we look into the manger is a stumbling block. We see God sending His Son. God sending His very own Son. And what you do with this Jesus means everything. You may say, Lewis, wait a minute. The Bible says, Gary last week said it, and he's right, and Gary also took it to the right place. I'm just going to recap. John 3, verse 17. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. And again, as Gary said last week, keep reading. Verse 18. He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. I want to read a quote to you from a commentator. and He said this, So before Christ made His public appearance, man was told that He would do one of two things for them. Either He would give new life, eternal life, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, or He would condemn them to eternal punishment. This, the message of the gospel, has not altered. John proclaimed it before Christ commenced His ministry. Christ preached it throughout His ministry. The apostles taught it after His ministry. And it is still the same today. Now this is the part where you say, Lewis, you are killing my Christmas buzz. And you also said, I think you're going a little bit crazy, you also said at the beginning of the message that this message was supposed to bring true joy and true celebration. And the true joy and celebration comes through this. In John, as he is talking about John the Baptist, he has John the Baptist uttering these words. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Brothers and sisters, in order for you to know the joy of the Advent, the joy of the coming of Jesus you have to understand your condition before Christ was in your heart and in your life. When you look into this manger, do you see the Savior of the world who came and was going to die a death so that you could spend eternity with the Father? And I think far too often the nostalgia of Christmas lures us into this faux celebration that we're all okay. And that some magic is going to happen around midnight on the 24th and we're all going to be happy. And next year is going to be better than the one past. But the reality is this, brothers and sisters. You and I are sinners. The chaff, the wrath, the unquenchable fire... 
I deserve that. But God, Ephesians 2, because of His great love, sent His Son to die in my place. And this is great news. It's not a joy kill. And as we look at this, as we look at the judgment of God that the birth of Christ inaugurated, one of the things that should happen in us, whenever you read in the Bible apparent bad news, you need to look at the other side of the coin and you need to realize the greatest news possible has happened, that God has made a way in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that happens, and it's, it's, it's funny, I, I get surprised by it every year, and I shouldn't be but surprised by it every year, and, and that is, is that um, as the holiday season approaches, um, many times in my office uh, or on the phone or as I'm out and about, um, I hear of great pain. Um, depression te- tends to get worse this time of year. The expectation of being with family is not always the joyous occasion for some of you. Um, Sometimes we look around and we see that um, uh, others, and as a a dad, sometimes you, I remember years of looking around and, uh, you know, getting depressed myself and knowing that other fathers were able to provide a little bit better for their children and there were going to be more under the tree of my neighbor's house than at my house and uh, can cause some frustration. You know, this world, in this world, while we live in this world, we're, we're not giving any promises that there's going to be peace on earth. In fact, if you keep looking... This is interesting how this happens, that in verse 19, but when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him, John, on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, and on the account of all the wicked things which Herod had done, he added this also to them all, that he locked John up in prison and eventually beheaded him. But notice something else. That in this message that seems heavy and seems dark at times, in verse 18, it says, So with many other exhortations he preached the gospel, or the literal translation, the good news to the people. This world is not going to be right until the second advent of Christ. So in some ways we've just got to get over it. I want to be careful. I don't mean... If you're here this morning and you're struggling with sadness or family, I don't mean just stop it and just get over it, right? What I mean is look beyond it. Look beyond it. Look beyond it and be thankful for the fact that your main biggest problem in this world has been taken care of, and that is your sin problem. If you are a believer, your sin problem has been taken care of. And let that fill you with joy and with wonder. And when your head tells you, yes, I know that my sin problem has been taken care of and I don't have to bear my own wrath, but my wife won't be nice to me, you need to cut that butt off. (laughs) So think about that this Advent season. Think about this 
this Christmas season. Now I want to end with this. So I want to end with going back to the beginning and talking about where the world celebrates Christmas. And so I want this to lay heavy on us. So what we have just learned about the coming of Christ and about the two baptisms and about that, you know, there's a winnowing fork and an axe. Think about this folly of the world, our secular non-Christian society, celebrating Christmas. You understand what I call that a folly? Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are called to be lights in this world. And there should be We should have a broken heart over the fact that our world is celebrating something that it doesn't understand and in fact is its very means of stumbling into destruction. And so, brothers and sisters, you and I must do something about it. And I want to share with you as we end, um, so I think we should be burdened by this, that I want to share with you... um, something about how good God is and how evil Lewis is. (laughs) I was convicted not too long ago about um, uh, believing, uh, being passionate about the hope that was within me. And when I think about that, I I, I think about, all right, Lewis, do you really believe deep down, down in your guts and in your belly about this hope that you proclaim and that you proclaim that you hold on to. And one of the ways that I get convicted about that is that, so I ask myself often, well, Lewis, those around you who aren't believers, have you, if you believe that, then you'll be sharing that with them. And you'll be praying for them that God would open the eyes of their heart, that God would draw them to himself. And I got convicted about that. And uh, so then I started coming up with this plan of how I was going to make that happen. This is where I'm saying evil Lewis, right? Godly path, okay, plan. I've got to plan this out. And so part of the plan, uh, and I think this is a good part of the plan, uh, was just to begin to pray that God would bring somebody along in my path. And so I started thinking about what this would look like. And then I get this random phone call from one of you about somebody that you knew who was not a believer that was dying of cancer, had been given two months to live, and were a month into that two months of living. So then I schemed this whole... I don't know if you all do this. Uh, I hadn't asked Gary if he does this, but I planned this whole thing of how I'm going to get it, like I'm going to be real smooth and get into this gospel presentation. And I start thinking about, oh, he could ask this question. I'm going to counter with this. And so I start working my plan. But before I could get into my plan, this is how good God is to a sinner like me. He says, wait a minute. I just need to ask you a question. And I said, okay, what's the question? I need to know that I'm right with God. So we're able to share the gospel with this man. And so one of the reasons that this passage and this message is important to me is that if this man makes it to Christmas, this will be the most joyous Christmas that he's ever had. The last I visited with him on Thursday, and he, I said, you know, they're saying days. And he said, Lewis, I'm at peace. He smiled a big smile. Can we celebrate Christmas like that? 
this man has every reason to think that God and the world is against him. He's come in contact with the Lamb of God who has taken away his sin. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we can celebrate like this man without the consequence hanging over our head of today or tomorrow may be our last day, but that we can rejoice and that we can truly sing of the joy to the world because the Lord has come. Let us know for sure how joyous this gift to us is because of our dire strait before we've met Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I am reminded, You reminded me this morning as I was reading back through this text that it's all Yours. It's all Yours. It's Your threshing floor. It's Your storehouses. And God, it amazes me that You would call me one of Your children. God, I pray, Lord, as we enter into this time and enter into this Christmas season where we celebrate the coming of Your Son, Jesus, God, I pray that we would be filled with wonder and with awe. And God, I pray that it would boil over into worship. God, I pray that it would boil over into us talking about You and how great You are for saving a sinner like us, so undeserving. So I pray that, God, that You would get glory in that way. And God, I also pray that, Lord, You would burden us this Christmas season. That as we hear non-believers talking about and saying the words, Merry Christmas, that, God, I pray that You would convict us and that we would understand that person's faith if you don't open their eyes. And God, I pray that it would take us to our knees and that it would give us boldness to proclaim this gospel and that we would continue to preach and teach and tell of this gospel, this good news, that you have sent your Son to take away our sins. God, we thank you for this. It's in this Lamb Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.